Why do we cry? How come love hurts? And what's a happiness researcher doing talking about sadness anyway? My name's Helen Russell. I'm an author, journalist and happiness researcher. And How To Be Sad is a podcast based on my book of the same name, exploring why we get sad, what to do when we're sad, and how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. In this podcast, I'll be talking to people from all walks of life, and each episode I'll be joined by a special guest sharing their own story. Welcome to How To Be Sad. My guest today is Holly McNish, the poet, writer, and Ted Hughes award-winning author of Nobody Told Me, a collection of poems and stories about raising a child in modern Britain, covering pregnancy, birth, sex afterwards, spoiler alert, it's different and you're tired a lot, commercialisation of parenthood, and the frustrations and fabulous highs along the way. She was the UK Poetry Slam champion and came third in the World Poetry Slam finals. Her YouTube channel attracts millions and Holly writes with raw honesty, warmth and humour. It's urgent and powerful, yet conversational, like talking to a friend. She is hashtag writer goals for all of us. But as well as great critical and mainstream success, Holly has also had setbacks. She's experienced snobbery in the poetry world, there's been online abuse, and Holly has explored the everyday sadnesses that many of us experience, but few, I'd hazard, can express so movingly. So Holly, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks. That was very nice. I've never had a hashtag either used in an intro. Oh, well, exciting. there you go. <laughs> You've got one now. <laughs> so we are speaking, yes, during lockdown three. Where are you? How are you? How is it going, your end? It's going all right. I can't complain too much. I'm not enjoying it. Like, quite. <laughs> I guess every time I speak to someone that's not, not a parent, a lot of people in the poetry world are sort of asking questions like, are you using it to really think about stuff and do a lot of writing or stuff? <laughs> no, I'm not. Of course, I don't have time to do half the stuff. But yeah, I'm all right. I'm basically sitting at an old desk, which is crammed in next to my bed, which is also my office and my bedroom but it's very nice I've got a I've got a nice view of like a cottage opposite and a and a holly tree so yeah I can oh, like nice. keep an eye on the birds while I'm working and yeah my daughter's in the other room quietly nice. doing the tapestry program which keeps closing down because <laughs> there's too many kids using it so yeah we're all becoming right. IT experts this year amazing I think yeah, yeah that's one thing to ease the guilt actually for me with my daughter is that I think she'll be really good on, on all the different like chat technology <laughs> yeah whereas I had BBC computers back in the day but yeah um so I would love to I I first came across you know your work with with nobody told me it meant so much to me in the throes of early parenthood and in it you talk about this this juggling that we were all doing even before lockdown of trying to be a worker and a parent and a partner all at the same time and about feelings of guilt and being bored sometimes and loneliness and these are things that I feel like still not enough of us talk about. What sort of state of mind were you in when you started writing? What was diaries at first, weren't they? Yeah, so it was all all diaries. I'd say about maybe a tenth of the book was added after when they were sort of going through the editing process and saying oh you've not really written for about four months here is there anything you can remember from that time but the rest of it was just diaries from yeah from the days that that they're written on and I think it was mainly I was going to say stupidly but it's not stupid it was mainly thoughts that I just didn't feel like I could talk to people about because I genuinely didn't think that anyone else was going through the same thing and I think maybe because I was a bit younger like I wasn't that young when I had my daughter but I was 26 and I didn't really have many friends with kids around so I just did not think that other people were thinking the same thing and I, yeah I guess the biggest example of that is a poem I wrote about breastfeeding in toilets and I did I did like a couple of books or one book and a, and a kind of audio cd thing before nobody told me came out which had some of the stuff from that in it and I didn't put this poem embarrassed in it because I didn't think anyone else was doing the same thing. And that's been the one that's been shared the most. So it sort of opened up my eyes to the fact that there's loads of mums, parents, but mums, especially for stuff like that, just going through the same bollocks, really. And yeah, not talking about it. More now, I think. 
I think more people are talking about it now. But yeah, still not enough. I think, yeah, the ideal, like, all the ideals of parenting and, and family life, especially, I didn't realise were so strong until the minute I got pregnant. Yeah, we are sold some strange ideas, right? Yeah, even ideas that I didn't really have before. Like, I didn't have, before I got pregnant, it wasn't a planned pregnancy. And um, before I got pregnant, I didn't really have this vision of a beautiful, well, it's always like, Aryan sort of <laughs> looking person. Yeah, it's very white, thing. isn't it? It's yeah. so white. You know, walking down beaches with the tall, like Prince Charming looking husband and the Alsatian and stuff. And I didn't think that <laughs> stuff before I was pregnant, but then as soon as I got pregnant, I noticed all the obviously pictures of other people that were pregnant. And it's such, oh, it's such crap. Yeah. I didn't notice the Alsatian, so I look out for Well, that. I don't know if it's out. I don't really know my dogs, but a dog walking along the beach with a husband and a pregnant woman, that's what. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it struck a chord and you talk about like mushy baby brain <laughs> and this idea that women get baby brain it's not uh, baby brain you're just tired you're just chronically sleep deprived I know and that's I think that's just not get well like lots of things to do with parenting but that's just not given the status is it there's all these like childish baby language especially surrounding motherhood which I <laughs> cannot stand and that's one of them yeah going back to work and it was the first day I'd gone back to work after seven months. I think I had like a month of holiday that I took after maternity leave. And the first day, my colleague, who's another mum, said that I had that mushy mummy baby brain. And I thought, I, I haven't slept at all. This is used as torture in like warfare to keep people awake. <laughs> I haven't slept. And also you haven't slept whilst looking after a really vulnerable human being. Like there's no other job where somebody that's so sleep deprived would be put in charge of another human being. It's just unreal. And then for it to be sort of belittled, yeah, I, that mushy mummy baby brain drove me mad. All that stuff, like people told me, you know, you'd lost your memory. Oh, your memory's not as good. It's like, my memory's brilliant. It's just having to do like <laughs> five times as much. Yeah, yeah. that was, uh, but I still get that. You know, people still say about, you know, motherhood making you a bit forgetful or a bit ditzy or so no it's not no you're just remembering more stuff on less sleep yeah I told I said to my mum about that even when my daughter was about seven I started crying to my mum on the phone once saying I've just become so stupid like I don't know anything anymore I used to like read a lot of stuff and go places and like learn things and I felt like I hadn't learned anything um, but it was after talking to three people that didn't have kids and they were all talking about, I don't know what it was, like an exhibition or something like that. And I didn't know anything about the artists or about the anything they were talking about. And my mum was like, don't worry, we all feel like that until the children are about 10. And then you can start like actually doing things other than work and, and childcare, basically. Yeah, because you haven't been to the exhibition. You can't. You, you can't haven't go. been, you haven't like downloaded all the new music of the 50 bands that you might you know anything like that but I just yeah it's always sort of just seen as this sort of mummy brain oh makes me want to vomit your story <laughs> it kind of broke my heart your story is sort of connected but about booking a babysitter for a set amount of time to go to a, a gig that you really really wanted to go to and just the sort of the misunderstanding that that it meant so much and that it is such a time specific thing that time takes on a whole other meaning as well yeah. when you yeah have less of it it was very yeah. moving but I think yeah I that I still sort of feel a bit teary for my like <laughs> for myself like sitting yeah. on a bench having a little glass of wine on my own yeah that was the one the first the first night out and you get ready as well don't you like I think it's such a big deal for me, it was putting on earrings. I remember putting on earrings and thinking, oh, I remember like fancy what I was like before things that I did. And yeah, they wouldn't let me into the hour poetry show because I was about 10 minutes late, basically. And, and then I just sat on a park bench because I thought I've got this babysitter for, for two hours and I don't want to go home and be a mum again. So I'm just going to sit on this bench and have a glass of wine. I think I bought like a screw top bottle from the local one stop. <laughs> sat on the bench I sort of quite like that now so a lot of things that I think I saw quite negatively when I was in the thick of it when my daughter was much younger I think is is quite amazing now like if I go out well like everyone thinks I guess if you go out with a group of mums they're just so mm. grateful to be out that I find it much more fun than like 
any other cross-section of humanity to go, to go out with. That's interesting. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the comedian Helen Thorne I was chatting about and she, they get that she's within Scummy Mummies, she's one half of Scummy Mummies. Yeah. She said that the, the, the crowds that they get are just so willing <sighs> and ready to have a good time because yeah. they're just so happy to be there. It's amazing. That's the same with me. Yeah, gigs, like a lot, a lot of the gigs are uh, mums in the audience and it's just, yeah, it's just the excitement. And me as well, even though it's like going to work, it's still exciting to meet people after actually being on the stage. I feel, yeah, I feel like that in lockdown, a lot of my sort of friends and people I know that don't have kids or don't have like care and responsibilities, I should say really, they're sort of saying, oh God, you're going to appreciate stuff so much after lockdown. It's like, yeah, but if I've sort of had that as well. Like <laughs> I had a kind of lockdown in a different way. Um, yes. So I think you've already, as a parent, got all the appreciation of that sort of taking the little things not granted. Yeah. But did you have... And you say, you know, it, it wasn't planned, but you still, once you found out you were pregnant, you had expectations of what motherhood would be like. And there is still, I I tried for a long time to get pregnant. It was a very hard road to get there. And then when I finally did, I felt so guilty for ever kind of uh, complaining about anything because I thought, mm. I know how hard it is for so many people and I know it's many people don't have this and that they want it. Yeah. And I spoke to a Harvard professor about this idea of arrival fallacy that many people have around achieving maybe a career goal and then it doesn't quite feel like they hoped. And he said it's completely legitimate to apply it to like relationships or parenthood as well. Yeah. And that helped a lot to get this the idea that it was okay really to complain about something even if you really wanted it. Did you have a guilt as well about feeling some of these things? I don't know if I had that sort of guilt. I was I was thinking that actually, after talking to friends that had tried, similarly tried for ages to get pregnant, and then I had the guilt of ever complaining about mine, I guess, because mm. for that reason, but I guess as someone that didn't take ages getting pregnant, I wasn't, it wasn't, you know, totally unexpected. I wasn't being very careful and I didn't think that I wouldn't want a child if I had one. I guess I didn't have so many expectations in that way because I wasn't prepared. And I think in a way that was that was really nice. I think my expectations came when I was pregnant and started attending more things with other people that were pregnant and started reading more about pregnancy and seeing all these pictures and all these ideals of, of family life, especially. I think that's, that's where my guilt set in. So I felt maybe it's the opposite in a way or not the opposite but I sort of as soon as I was pregnant I sort of had this feeling that I'd done something wrong like I'd let people down in what way well because I wasn't planning to be pregnant so I don't think I've I've really done much in my life that I've not planned like I've been quite geeky all my life and like worked hard and got good grades and all that sort of stuff and I knew that people around me wouldn't be pleased about it so I think that's really weird and that was the first time I guess you're talking about all these all these pressures and these ideas of what you should be as a pregnant woman or what you should be as a mother or a parent the first one I had then was the pregnancy test adverts because I thought oof, I've never seen an advert where someone looks nervous about the pregnancy test or doesn't know right. it's always like great just announcing that we're pregnant so that even that feeling from the very beginning I suddenly realized that I'd been sold all these ideas of of motherhood of the announcement of telling your partner that you're pregnant and every time I'd seen it it'd been really just whitewashed <laughs> I guess in a racial way as well but also in mm. this glorifying everything way and I, I knew, like my grandma, I guess she was the first one. And just from not being married, which didn't bother me, like I'm not bothered about about whether people are married or not, but I just knew that she'd be disappointed. And it was really weird to think, like when I did the pregnancy test, I was I was really scared, but I was quite excited. It wasn't like a terrible time in my life to have a kid. You were in Glastonbury, weren't you? I was I was in, well, I was on my yeah. way to Glastonbury. I was in the okay. toilets at King's Cross. I said that to my friend. She was like, oh, there's probably about three other people doing it in the toilets as well. <laughs> like, what a thought. That's <laughs> a book. Wow. I know, right? But yeah, it's just the idea that I would disappoint people with this news that actually in my head was pretty amazing and exciting and scary. So that, 
the telling people I was pregnant just took me ages to like pluck up the courage. I've never been so nervous. Just knowing that people's faces, you know, when you've got news and you want people to feel the same way as you and knowing people were going to look at me with like concern or disappointment and looks that I didn't want. Like I just didn't want to tell people. Not her, not her dad, I don't mean, but just, yeah, just, just family. That's interesting. Did you feel any, when I don't want to tell people things, I often think it would be easier, like in a text or in an email, the (laughs) face-to-face thing is hard. Did you ever feel tempted to just, I just send a little message? I did that to a few people, but I think, did you? yeah, with family, it didn't really cross my mind to do that. <laughs> Maybe I should have. Maybe I should it's have. an old-fashioned telegram. Yeah, it was also exciting, the idea of telling people. It was, like, there was excitement in telling friends and stuff. Most of them guessed, to be honest. My mum guessed, so I didn't have to tell her. Like, she's a nurse, and she saw that my boobs were suddenly, like, not a tiny A-cup anymore. So she asked me about four times before I actually admitted it. Your mum sounds amazing. I would like to talk about your mum. Oh, um, your mum, she was working as a nurse at the time, yeah. working like 60-hour weeks, is that right? Yeah. And she would, once you had your daughter, she was doing a five-hour round trip every week to yeah. come and see you guys. It was unreal. Like my mum and my well ex-partner's mum were just incredible. And yeah, it, I guess it's again this idea seeing women mainly. Obviously, there are granddads that also help out, but in our family, it was just these two grandmas that were amazing the other grandma live lives pretty close but she came just to sort of hold my daughter so that I could just sit without a kid in my arms and my mum yeah my mum's like just overrun with work as I think most NHS workers were and are and she used to drive so it was about two and a half hours each way and come every Sunday and then take my daughter to this like baby group on a Monday and convinced me to go because I wouldn't go to that group. It was in our village. It was in a church. I thought people would frown on me for being a bit younger, not married. So I also refused to go to that. So my mum was the first one that took my daughter to that. But yeah, she came up, stayed overnight on Sunday and then went back, which yeah, is amazing. And also knew what to do more than anyone else. I think, yeah, this sort of idea of the family and most often obviously like a husband and a wife living with the kid But actually, the people that were most helpful, my daughter's dad was very helpful, but my mum just knew. Like, she knew the stuff that she hadn't got. So she was the only person that would just make me a meal rather than, you know, buying a gift. Yes. And she would, the one thing that I think still is the only thing I wanted was that she used to take the baby out of the house and refuse to let me come. (laughs) I think that was the main thing. Yeah, what a treat. Oh, what a treat. And also because the guilt is amazing. The guilt that you don't want to be attached to this baby all the time. And But everyone else that helped was really helpful. But whenever they went out, they would ask me if I wanted to come with them. And And I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. But I always said yes out of guilt. And she obviously knew that. Um, And raised us, like moved from Glasgow to near Slough just before we were born, me and my brother. And so she didn't have any family help at all and was doing it while my dad was at work all the time and then she went back to work and was still doing all the childcare. and um yeah so she's one of these really nice people you know some people are like well I had it hard so you should have it hard <laughs> she's sort of so she opposite. had it hard and she knew what she had missed and wanted you to make sure you didn't miss yeah it. yeah she knew she didn't have her parents around and she didn't have anyone to help she didn't have a night away from us I don't think for like seven years I know a lot of friends still that haven't had a, a night away from their from their babies. So one of my friends even last night was talking about how her kid's four and she's not had a just a night not with her child. Hmm. Yeah, which I sort of feel should be like a government <laughs> scheme just to book, <laughs> Mandate. Ho- book hotel rooms for mums uh, when the kid's like a year. <laughs> I'm interested, I think... Yeah, you had sort of two super grands. Well, you have two super grands. Does that kind of raise the bar for what a mother should do if your mum is still doing that and you're a grown-up? I speak to a lot of people who say, oh, my mum was, was so great. It's, it brings its almost its own challenges. Of course, everyone wants a great mum, but, you know, as a parenting model to follow, she sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Do you know what? I've never even thought about that. So now you've added... No, I'm sorry. I put the thought in your head. <laughs> 
I don't think that's added to guilt. I think, um, to be honest, this might sound really arrogant and I don't mean it to be, but since writing about motherhood, I've had people online, obviously people criticise stuff all the time online, but at one point I put a poem about struggling to do everything and just, you know, realising like this is good enough, it's fine, you're not going to be this picture perfect thing. And and somebody criticised me and said, well, I think that's rubbish if you're, you know, not wanting the best for your child. Why are all these, why are all these parents sort of, mums especially, posing about not doing stuff that they should be doing? And see, when someone criticised me as a mum, I just started complimenting myself in my head all the time. I thought, God, I've been criticising my mother in since my daughter was born, even since I was pregnant. And I think it was when she was about five when nobody told me, just come out. But as soon as somebody else called me a bad mum, I was like, oof, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm not. Said, yeah, I think it is amazing. It's a bit like if somebody insults your family, you're like, no, I can do that, but you you can't. Like, Right. Do you know, I had that sort of feeling like, I'm allowed to say my uncle's whatever, but if you yeah. talk about him like that, I'll kill you. Yeah. Um, and it was a bit like that. I thought, how dare you? You have no idea what a good mum I am. And then I sort of started to, <laughs> sort of start to Tell forgive myself. <laughs> yeah, basically. And I had it recently a lot in lockdown. Put up a poem about um, doing things in your own way and how I haven't, like, my daughter hasn't done all the school exercises or the extra work. And we haven't learned to bake sourdough bread or whatever it is that lots of people were doing. And I had a few people on that say, this is ridiculous. Why are you posing about, like, being a terrible parent? And so every time somebody does that, it sort of refuels my, oh, no, I'm really good. (laughs) That's a great way of framing it. If you could bottle that, that would be, yeah. Yeah, I think just get somebody to call you a bad mum every now and again. And I think you'll And then you'll shut it. How's your sort of relationship with anger now? Because when you were sort of talking earlier about when people criticise parenting and then just saying, but if if you slag off my family, then it's something else. I know I I was raised, you know, that nice girls don't get angry and it's not something that's encouraged in in girls. But I think with your profile as well, you have had people saying not nice things online and some daft responses. How how do you handle that now and do you get mad? Yeah, I do get mad. I don't think I've ever like maybe because of that because you're told to be sweet and smiley all the time. I don't think I've ever been a very angry person in that sort of angry shouty more aggressive sort of way I guess I find things quite funny sometimes I guess if I get stuff online I think it affected me at first but honestly there's only so many times people can sort of call you like an ugly cow or whatever on YouTube and it sort of goes over my head now like I don't really not really bothered quite like the criticism online sometimes like people pick up on things in poems that I wouldn't have I feel like I'm genuinely genuinely mainly happy but I do have like a ball of anger constantly <laughs> who, who gets the ball of anger then what gets that going just just anything like the sort of a lot to do with motherhood like you mm. to get it <laughs> it can be anything like there's so much bad stuff in the world isn't there I think it would be weird not to be angry most of the time like I'm really lucky so I think my going back to my brilliant mum I think she brought me up to really appreciate stuff that we had and she had to deal with like sorrow and heartache every day in her job all the time like awful stuff and I remember patients like that she'd been really close to committing suicide or dying or young people dying or like loads of stories I remember her not telling me all the time but a lot of the time so if I sort of started complaining about stuff I guess that in teenage years I remember complaining about a dress that didn't look great on me not in like a put down way but she would always you know sort of make it obvious that there were really bad stuff going on and you need to be grateful she's like grateful for everything ever anytime we go out she's like oh god this is so nice that we can do this I'm so grateful I got to this age or everything I'm quite easily happy again in my like actual day-to-day life but I think it's good to be angry about stuff like there's loads of terrible stuff going on and you should be angry about it and it gets belittled a lot I think people get this about anything don't they racism or feminism if you complain about complaints is an anger is belittled all the time by people and it's seen as a negative thing but I don't think it's negative 
and I guess I've written it down in poems for years and years and years, yeah. which is very helpful as well. I have been very uh, inspired and interested by the work that you've written about uh, double standards, about raising girls and boys and also about men and women and how actually we do disservice to men and women by not letting each have the full swathe of emotions and I also when I read books to my kids I will often change pronouns and it bothers (laughs) nobody at all it it certainly doesn't bother me or the kids they are more than happy with it and the idea that some people get so cross about it just feels insane it's also fascinating seeing people with anger, mm-hmm. I think, sometimes. Like, Akala wrote a really good book um, about race in Britain, and he was talking about the fascination of racist people. Like, it's just, like, why are you so angry about this? And I yes. get I get that about stuff to do with women, I guess. Like, mm-hmm. I have a lot of people really angry, in my family <laughs> included, really angry oh just about the word woman or using that instead of the word lady or girl or, like, little things. Like, this doesn't matter. And, yeah, the pronouns at the moment, people are, like, losing their shit over the fact that, you might say they. It's like, oh, is it, if that's the worst thing that you have to do, you've got it all right, mm. don't you really? Yeah. And I think I was really interested as well to read about that you and your daughter's dad have always kind of shared shared the parenting quite equally. And even though you sometimes you're scared to sort of go away and, and leave and feel like, oh, maybe I'm not as important, I'm not the most important parent, but that it's a really important step to actually empower both parents in that scenario and I know that you're not with your daughter's dad anymore but has that helped really lay the foundations for co-parenting yeah I think so I've got to say like he is a brilliant father but I've still I still do more like I just want to make that <laughs> because I say that a for lot, the record but I think it gives I think it gives a disservice and the idea of like equal parenting sometimes makes me want to vomit into my mouth a little bit because I do think like biologically for a heterosexual couple biologically it's it's not equal like it's who the person that has because the baby. we've already done nine months or? yeah because we've done nine months and you like you've had so much to do with pregnancy and birth and societal expectations are different for a father compared to a mother for example so in terms of the actual practical stuff obviously it can be quite equal but in terms of even me still thinking about my body my ex doesn't still think about the way his body's changed right. since yeah. giving birth. Like that stuff is so strong and so heavy. So I guess, yeah, equal parenting sometimes I'm like, okay, it's, it's as equal as it can be. But yeah, I do think it's it's laid the foundation. And actually co-parenting, you know, obviously if people are very happy in their relationship, then this is, <laughs> I don't mean it for this, but I think there's loads that loads of people can learn from, <laughs> like I think we're seen to learn more from couples who are still together with their kids actually talking to a lot of single parents or parents who are co-parenting there's so much good stuff that comes out of my situation now that I actually didn't have when we were together so oh like what well like having time off so I don't know what it's like for other people but a lot of people around me even when they say they're doing equal parenting still on a weekend for example it still seems to be in my area the mums who are sort of watching the kids all the time and don't have uh, not excuses but there seems to be more like masculine type excuses like if a football match is on is a stereotypical one but one which does happen with a lot of my group that that is like that is like holy so that obviously you can just go and watch that or obviously you can just (laughs) go to golf or or go to your football or or whatever (laughs) golf I think is the biggest it's like you've invented a sport where you walk and chat with your mates for three hours, but we have to see it as a sport professionally. I know it is a sport, but golf and fishing, it's like, those are leisure activities, man. That is like saying I'm going for, but that sort of thing. But I I now have two days, well, not at the moment because he's got a a job in the daytime. So I'm the one looking after my daughter in the days, but um, I've got two days a week where I don't parent basically. And it's amazing. And that is t- it's taken me like years to not feel guilty saying that because there's obviously so much guilt in separation when you have a kid. It's horrendous. Yeah. Um, and that is another thing which I think is really terrible, the uh, sort of family life idea, especially around Christmas. A lot of the Christmas films where, the, the you know, we'll be having an amazing day and then we watch a film where the kid asks Santa to get her parents back together and that's a like, happy ending of the... So that sort of thing is horrendous. But, and you don't want to sort of, 
pose about stuff that you get because you're separated. But I do for the last five years. I've had two days a week where my daughter's at my dad's. I don't do the school run. I don't pick her up. It's not like I'm off. Like obviously if she phones or needs help or I can go places, I can go anywhere. I've got evenings to myself. And it's really, I really love it. And I think I'm a, a better parent because of it. And I'm not saying that people should split up for that reason. But I just think that, like, how much of a difference it's made to my life to have some actual time. And I don't mean time when everyone's at home at the weekend and you're both half looking after a kid, which is sometimes more irritating, you know, (laughs) than actually being away. It's actually, you know, and I don't know, I don't know how people would do it if they are in a couple, because if you're in the house, it's not really space away. But you don't want to, you know once a month but not don't want to you can't like pop to a hotel yeah I think that's really important to talk about I think yeah thank you for being so honest about that I think it's yeah not a lot of people are saying that because yeah. I guess there is that guilt around it yeah there is a guilt and yeah I guess I've I've got like the house in the village without like a partner or a husband in it so my house is like used by my friends to like set up curry nights in or if they're having a birthday then they'll ask if they can come to my house and invite like the four people to this house and it's purely because there's not a partner there that's not actually to do with the kids so much freedom yeah it's the freedom and people not knowing where I am like on a Wednesday if I finish work and I do want to get a trip not at the moment obviously but if I want to go out for a walk you don't have to tell anyone and that I found that horrendous like just going out oh why oh how long are you going to be what you doing it's like oh I just want to like to step out no one knows oh yeah and how about you've sold that perfectly um how about you know the because heartbreak is something that everybody will go through at some point in their life and it sounds as though you are well kind of over the the other side now but do you think you're right about the end of your relationship or or the heartbreak is is anything kind of off limits for you in terms of I know that you're careful not to identify your daughter and I try and set boundaries about around my family and my relationship and I I hope I'm doing it right but I don't know Um, where are you with with all of that as a writer I have loads of things that are off, off limits I think like I don't I don't know if I'll ever write about that I might I'm not sure I guess I'd see as my daughter grows up because I sometimes feel guilty for stuff that I have written already and nobody told me and stuff that I didn't think would have been a problem and I guess when I started writing it I didn't have the knowledge of what it's like to have a kid or what that kid would grow into or anything um or that she'd learn to read or that she'd learn to read (laughs) signs that said ice cream (laughs) stuff that you've been (laughs) pretending didn't exist (laughs) yeah so she I remember once because she comes to a lot of gigs with me and especially when she was younger she did (laughs) which is very hectic but I remember once she was really sort of she doesn't normally listen to the stuff. She'd just put on headphones and like watch Harry Potter or something because it's not really appropriate things she's listened to and really boring for her. But she um, heard this story of when she'd had a tantrum and it was from, nobody told me from when she was about three, two or three. And um, it was about how terrible I felt and how people were looking at me and judging me and that sort of feeling. And then she was sort of embarrassed that people had heard about the tantrum and also said oh I didn't realize that you didn't like it was that terrible that's so awful and then she felt guilty and I was like oof I didn't I guess selfishly didn't really think about this like that is not the stuff that I thought would have embarrassed her and now she's fine with it but it made me think like oh okay so after nobody told me I've sort of I've written stuff about my feelings towards her and stuff to do with parenting but I do check check with her if she'd be embarrassed now if like this came out like I had I had in in your head or you would out loud ask her no ask her now like she's 10 now so (laughs) poem I'd written a poem about how she's getting older and I'm sort of losing stuff that was quite tiring like I she asked me to be a dog a lot when we were younger oh so yeah I, I have to be a dog oh yeah. all the time and I, I did get my back right can't it. take it oh honestly and like really humiliating in some ways like <laughs> especially when touring I'd say right after the gig you could I'll play whatever you want for like two hours and it was always be a dog and mm. I'd written this poem about how she's growing up and I'm sort of missing stuff like that but actually secretly we still play teddies and things 
And she said, please don't publish that. Oh. Because then my friends, I was like, you do realise all your friends are like this at home. They're still sometimes yeah. wanting this stuff. So that, I, I took it out of the, the next book, yeah. basically. Things like that. And yeah, and I don't talk about, I don't write about other people's relationships. I don't talk about my parents much and things like yeah. that that I don't my gran I do but she gave me permission to say whatever I wanted so. she also sounds awesome yeah she is amazing I guess one that she won't mind at all the poem Aerosmith which I love <laughs> where you talk about the love for your child kind of eclipsing all that's gone before yeah and getting the lyrics of I don't want to miss a thing I'm totally with you and I feel that too and I wonder, with the benefit of, of experience and, and the years since you've written that, how you square that love with kind of romantic relationships or partners or how yeah. you move forward in life once having had that, not to kind of glorify motherhood or sort of be, yeah, pronatalist, but I wonder. Oh, but even you say that, isn't it? It's like not to glorify motherhood. And it's such a hard balance. Because yeah, you see, I'm, sure. all, I'm always really against, obviously, when they... Like politicians get it, don't they? Female politicians, oh, she's oh, yeah. mum, so yeah. she not know about this. And it's such yeah. a load of crap. But also, there are stuff that you might not know if you haven't been a mum. And I don't want that to be also belittled. Like, I do think <sighs> mainly the love that you have for this kid, and not, not always, don't get me wrong, it's not everyone, but holding another person inside your body is an experience that you haven't had if you haven't done it. And it's unreal and feeling totally totally that someone's reliant on you for everything like while you're pregnant especially I guess it's amazing and whatever I think there's so many different types of love aren't there and I guess they used to have that in the Greek days and now we just call everything love Um, yes yeah and actually maybe we should go back to sort of separating them sometimes but you haven't I'm not even sure romantic is the right word but you know that non-platonic love totally and however you know however much you love your friends or you love your partner or the lover or whatever you still haven't had them inside your body for nine months like (laughs) yeah not nine months (laughs) (laughs) not even sting can do that um so yeah I, I bet you have a crack <laughs> <laughs> so I just think it's different but there is so much guilt bloody guilt is so annoying there's so much guilt in that as well yeah and in saying I, I remember one of my friends being a bit pissed off about the idea of that poem saying oh, oh so really? you're saying so you're saying I can't I don't understand the love songs because I don't have a kid. And I was like, no, but you don't understand that type of love maybe unless, and it's not even having a kid. It's not having your own kid. It's caring for someone 24 seven, which most people don't have to do, which I guess is why mm-hmm. children, it's more of a thing because they're more reliant on you. You don't have to care for your partner. They're an adult, mm-hmm. even though I think some people act like they do. Yeah, it's, I, I, <laughs> I guess I got a bit angry after I had a kid when I put on the radio and I still get this when, love songs come on the radio and they are like 99% about romantic love yes and I feel like oof, where why is it that the only pop songs that get written or that get through the producers are songs about this type of love I think like the Spice Girls (laughs) Little Mix they've written quite a lot about like mothers yeah there are so few songs on like mainstream radio which capture things that I felt about my child but also other things like my grandparents or my parents or friends Jesus friendship it's like it yeah. should be up there with romantic love on on radio songs I think um I also feel the age thing as well there's very few lo- songs about um it's always that first flush there's very few like yeah. I'm in my 40s and 50s totally. and I really wanna yeah me <laughs> too and also about like I guess I feel this being separated and then having a like partner who I'm really besotted with now I think oh a lot of people I know actually it's their second marriages that seem to be the one that was really good where's the second marriage love songs where's the like oh this is heartache actually now I've found you or you know I've got a few friends now in their 40s and 50s who are getting married some getting married again 
Yeah, it's so it's so narrow the the radius. Yes, like, it's all yeah. obviously all heterosexual as well. It's all monogamous. Yeah, um, and yeah, all young. Yes, that's true. And I want to see. Are you are you still based? You're not in London anymore, and you're not in the Reading and Slough area. You're back in Cambridgeshire. So I've never been in London, but yeah, so I'm based in Cambridge now. Okay, I only mention it because. I think we grew up in similar areas and I was very interested when you mentioned Slough early, I went to school in Slough for a bit oh. and the experience from, from Slough and I felt a very big kinship with the kind of listening to E17 whilst applying impulse body spray <laughs> teenage yeah. years and then I guess going to a university where everyone was posher than you and then working in kind of literary London. It's all just a very weird blend and I wonder how you found that. I I ended up at university in in Exeter, so no, not as fancy as yours. But I sat next to someone who was very surprised that I didn't grow up with a butler, <laughs> and I didn't quite know what to say to that. <laughs> and and that kind of snobbery, it's a very unpleasant and quite British characteristic, oh. I think, at times. And I wondered if you experienced anything similar for going from from Reading, Cambridge, uh, Reading and Slough to Cambridge, and yeah, yeah, I did. It's uh, it's funny. I'm sure Exeter is as posh in that way as Cambridge. Like I'm sure, I'm sure it is. Yeah, loads. And in the publishing world, really, mm -hmm. I'm always shocked when people are shocked that I went to a state school. I think this is the biggest example for me. There's so so few people go to private school in the country, but. Everyone I seem to see it like <laughs> publishing houses or the awards things or whatever. It's it's just that no state school people. And I start like, where was where are all the people that went to state school? So they're just not working in these industries or. And yeah, Cambridge was really good in some ways. I had not the butler thing. Somebody showed me a picture of their house, and I was like, oh, that's a nice house. And it was just like their like doorman's place by the gate of the entrance oh to the God. house but that was like I guess a sort of ridiculous example but the I played lacrosse so my school the school I went to was one of the only state schools that played lacrosse in the UK because one of our teachers yeah, played it yeah really rare and it was brilliant because we would go and play all these really posh schools and have really nice dinners if it was an away match so it was quite exciting and they were scared of us because they thought for some reason we must be like really <laughs> really rough Hardcore, um, yeah <laughs> So I joined the lacrosse team at Cambridge and that was where it was really, really amazing. And they were amazed that I had a door number. So I guess that was my equivalent of the butler that um, I wrote down my address when we were doing the like Oxford-Cambridge match stuff and we had to write down our address to get kit. And I applied for a bursary to get the kit because you could. Um, and they all sort of laughed. And when I told like the new like first years that were coming through that you didn't have to pay for kit, everyone was like, what, you know, what are you doing? No, this is ridiculous and then when I wrote down my door number one of the girls was watching she's like oh, I've never met someone with a door number before how exciting and then started talking to the other people about how I had a door number it's like oh my goodness well honestly it was amazing like wow yeah it's really good having a door number it's very <laughs> it's very exciting like someone in a book <laughs> yeah how quaint <laughs> oh my word and do you think I you've you know you have experienced some snobbery, I guess, in the poetry world as well. Do you think that plays into this, this idea of this is what poetry is and this is, it's this, this many people still have an idea of poetry as quite an elite art form. Yeah. How does, how do you feel about that? I think I'm sort of done with it. I know that's a bit, a sort of, I don't know what that's like, but I, I think, I think going to Cambridge from a pretty standard middle class my background is really like working class from grandparents but my family and my parents are very middle class and um even going from that and the snobbery that you got there just things like not being able to speak latin or i remember lecturers being like of course you all know the myth of this or you all know the greek of this it's like no we don't because we don't study that at school it's not on the national curriculum so that sort of thing i think i got sort of used to it and I do think it's the poetry world still has a lot of snobbery about it. And it was one article in particular that was written about one of my books saying like they were going to review it, but to do so we'd call it poetry and this is not poetry. And and then and st there was stuff in the article that I thought sort of fair enough, like it's an art form and they want to see somebody that's sort of studied it. But I think this idea of studying poetry is what gets me that you have to study it at an English poetry course at university. 
But I don't want to be sort of anti-snobbish about it and say, you don't, no, that's not, <laughs> you know, that's not possible. Like it annoys me when I teach people and they, they sort of, <laughs> some of the more arrogant kids are like, yeah, I'm a poet, I'm a poet, miss, look at this. And it's like, oh, well, yeah, you can improve, like read some poetry. I don't really want to read any poetry, but I'm writing it. And it's like, mm. <laughs> like it is an art form. Like there is some yeah. learning that you can do in it. But yeah, there is definitely a snobbery around, oh, especially like how you share it, which drives me mad because that's got nothing to do with the poems. Like that's what I get a lot of a lot of snobbery about is about the fact that I put poems on social media as if that sort of changes the way that you're writing the poem. I find that really funny. Like, and no one... Because these people are very traditional. Yeah, but they're not even. Like, you get... You know, there's sort of Ted Hughes interviews on YouTube now. There's a lot of po- poets that were doing this for years. Just they just didn't have Instagram. Or they didn't, have, yeah. they didn't yeah. have social media. And I think that quite a lot. Like, Shakespeare wrote plays. Like, he wrote... Or maybe he wrote them. Or a group of people wrote them. <laughs> That's like, another podcast. <laughs> for people to see he advertised them and I find it weird that um you're sort of seen as an attention seeker if you put your poems on Instagram but you're not seen as an attention seeker if you send your poems to every poetry magazine to get published it's like this you're still trying to get people to read your work and share it yeah it's 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 too much sometimes but that the article came out and I think my funniest text yeah there's more to life isn't there if somebody criticizes and is a snob about your work it's like okay so be it like I need to go make my kids dinner I don't really have time to be annoyed about this but my the sort of people in the publishing world were kind of asking if I was all right and oh I'm so sorry and then I got a text from my cousin saying where do they live I'm gonna go and break the house and I was like that's it isn't it that's, <laughs> like, that's fine <laughs> two, two different. oh my goodness that's funny different Obviously. approaches different yeah. approaches yeah but the, but the idea that you'd be so upset about stuff like that there's really worse stuff going I do on. find though that it's a it's a tricky thing as a as a freelancer and as a creative that you have to produce the work and it would have been it feels like it would have been lovely in the olden days when you didn't then have to hustle to get it out there but that is kind of part of the the gig now yeah. because otherwise we cannot buy the food for our kids dinners no. so yeah but also in the like olden days before that there was not as much of a diversity of voices because of Mm. that because you didn't have you know places where you could see someone that the poetry world or the literary world maybe wouldn't deem good enough and actually what was deemed good enough some of it obviously is amazing but it was a very small narrow view of the world that was published in a lot of this stuff and certainly I think that having published a book about motherhood I remember lots of people saying oh it's it's motherhood and it's poetry (laughs) neither of those things people want to hear about that much oh really and so maybe it wouldn't have even been published if I hadn't have put stuff out I mean it would it wouldn't have been because the agent that saw me saw me on YouTube and that's how she asked if I had any more like diary entries and I sent her basically sort of nobody told me and there is still a lot of prejudice about themes in work as well I think is that right gosh okay yeah like a lot of the idea of (laughs) there was a thing on Twitter the other day actually with somebody saying have you ever been told certain themes that you write about are not appropriate in terms of being literature and everyone was just saying the same thing it was just stuff to do with birth periods motherhood this is like it's like domestic life this isn't literary you know yeah so I actually think without that these themes obviously they have been an itch to like Sylvia Plath wrote about my Angelou wrote about but not not a lot yeah which is amazing Uh, blood I think is one I look look at loads obviously the sort of violent blood is deemed appropriate for every art form yes whereas birthing blood is deemed inappropriate to even like (laughs) <laughs> mention I think you're right I think that yeah I, I was speaking to a lot of people for the book about books as, as therapy and one guy was very anti-biographies but actually this guy Sven Brinkman a Danish um, philosopher he was quite anti-biographies and then my theory is the same as you this idea that actually traditionally biographies have been written by a certain type of people and biographical writing so yeah. actually this is the time we need this plurality of voices we need to hear other people's experiences and the domestic and the the 
the stuff that was underestimated for years yeah, and years. Yeah, for years. I know this is a bit of a tangent, but I feel the same about like selfies. Like people oh, criticise <laughs> people criticise them so much. Obviously, as like people are getting vacuous, they're just taking pictures of their faces. But I keep thinking, yeah, but no one wanted to take a picture of our face for years unless we were aristocracy or famous. Like even before cameras, the only people that were painted were like yeah. royal family to try and attract another, which was a bit like Tinder, but in oil painting. And, you know, so actually now, a bit like the publishing world or writing, the world has finally opened up to like, oof, I can take my own portrait because I actually think my face is good enough and I can change it if I want and I can look sexy in the way I want. And I don't have to wait to be deemed appropriate to have a portrait of me taken or hung. So I think, of course, loads of people are taking these like selfie pictures or filtering the way they look because finally, you know, it's not only a king that can say, paint me a bit paler or like, you know, take away, (laughs) take away my stomach when you do this big painting for my dining room or whatever. I feel like that's yeah. a great way of reframing it. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah. Well, I, I've taken up so much of your time. I could talk to you for hours, but I, a couple final questions that I would love to know with all you know and from your work and experiences, what you do now when you're having a really bad day. I loved your reframing of the coronavirus lockdown as hibernation <laughs> on Twitter. What else do you do to kind of get you through when things feel sad? I think I go outside, really. If I'm sad about stuff, I just get on my bike, which probably shows that <laughs> I've never suffered much serious sadness, I guess, if that can like pick me up quite quickly. But just to go outside and just realise you're like this blip on the earth, <laughs> maybe that makes me feel worse. But I sort of can't take a lot of my problems, which haven't been great problems, seriously when I just go out and like, look at a bird or like look in the sky and think no idea if I were on this planet but I find that quite freeing yeah so I like that I love it and finally what would you tell your 21 year old self about being sad and how to cope with what life throws at us I think maybe I'd tell them what my mum told me don't like belittle your sadness if you're sad it's okay even if other people should be more sad so don't do that thing where you're like, oh, I'm really sad, but I know that there's somebody else that's having it worse because you can still be sad, but also not to um, not to think that that will never go. And that is the be all and end all. Yeah. Bit of a miserable point, but I remember my mum saying that about a lot of her patients who had killed themselves, basically saying, if they'd have just waited, I'm like, really, it's not like, don't let it engulf you and think it will never change. Thank you so much, Holly. So Slug and Other Things I'm Told to Hate is out in May. Is there anything else that we should know about that you'd like to share about what you have coming up? I don't think so. I think that's it, really. Got the book and I've got a tour, which, fingers crossed, will... When does the tour start? (laughs) It starts in the 8th of May in Belfast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Please do rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help others find us and helps us to make more episodes. You can find out more about How to Be Sad, the book and the podcast online at Ms. Helen Russell. And take care.